Welcome to the <clears throat> the uh, third part of the history of anatomy. I'm going to start with a quote by Mark Rothko, 1903 to 1970, <coughs> the uh, artist. I studied the figure. Only reluctantly did I realise it didn't correspond to my needs. There's a bit of that that goes on in this uh, uh, part of the podcast. For those who study (coughs) and teach the anatomy of the human body, much of its history is the history of its illustration. But it wasn't always like that. The medieval mind was confident, knowing only about the existence and the rough position of particular organs in the body without any real appreciation of their function or of their connection. The only expectations were that there would be some sort of obeisance to the traditional gamut of salves or mendicants, perhaps bloodletting and purges, which were utilised often in a rather complicated synchrony for a disparate range of illnesses. The causes of disease were obscure and for many their prognoses were thought wholly dependent upon a providential astrology chart. Since there was no definitive transition in disease from cause to effect, and no classification, what we call the nosology of illness, then the construction of an ordered internal anatomy of the body would have actually had very little general usefulness. This conceptual idea of a structured inner anatomy emerged only as science itself became the dominant reality, and as both anatomy and science developed a definitive method. And this chapter is a brief chronological, or this part actually is a brief chronological overview of the different styles that became an illustrative tradition in the depiction of human anatomy. The section of the cadaver as an independent activity worthy of formal study gained traction as it developed alongside the early public autopsies designed to determine the causes of death. Autopsy is a subject I'll cover in a later podcast, the next one, but it preceded the emergence and spread of the plague between 1347 and 1351, which killed almost one-third of the population of Europe. During the 14th century, there was a relatively wide public acceptance of examination of the dead, and it served as the impetus which permitted groups of surgeons and physicians to actually dissect cadavers with the purpose of describing taxonomies of the inner anatomy of the human body. In other words, examining the human body for other means. The idea of anatomical imagery to go along with the teaching of dissection could initially only grow as the discipline of anatomy and of cadaveric dissection itself grew. The intersection of the anatomy of the body with its representative art would always... um, reflect the competing interests of both groups, anatomist and artist, even if there was a differential dominance of the former, usually over the latter. There were different needs and different philosophies of both, at times resulting in an overt struggle between the anatomist's desire for accuracy and the artist's appeals to creative freedom. By the time the imagery was actually designed to show the anatomy, a phenomenon which really didn't consistently occur until the mid-16th century, then artist and anatomist could move closer to one another with a shared goal 
and even a shared common language. But by the end of the 19th century, when the vast repository of macroscopic visible anatomy, what the anatomists call gross anatomy, had been discovered and annotated, the artists were already drifting away, and the imagery of the anatomy textbooks became more mechanical, less imaginary, far less ornately Baroque in style. And it's only recently has there been a renewed interest in this art-anatomy connection, where the stimulus for some contemporary artists lies more in depicting the natural beauty of the subcellular structures, perhaps only visible through the most powerful electron microscopes, or uh, alternatively the intricate schematised neural networks of the brain, which has been borrowed from the highest resolution MRI radiographs. For such a visual enterprise as dissection of the body, examining the complex relationships of the vessels and nerves as they coursed around muscles and over joints, it seems somewhat surprising that there was not much medieval tradition for anatomical illustration. Part of the profusion of illustrated anatomy texts in the 16th century was a direct benefit of the spread of the printing press, where before most of the books in Europe were on theological subjects and painstakingly produced in the monasteries by a select few trained in the art of illustration. For one thing, the task of a realistic dimensional conversion from a contoured 3D dissection to a two-dimensional canvas would have been very daunting. It still is. This aside, anatomy could even have availed itself somewhat earlier than it did of the power of the visual, but it simply failed to do so. It's worth considering that this failure of connection was at a time when the Renaissance explosion of art was in many cases occurring literally down the street from the jobbing anatomist. Even as Renaissance artists were actively discovering the power and the beauty of the new perspective in their emulation of nature, with a newfound anatomical realism in their portrayal of the human form, few anatomists actually found merit in any sort of artistic collaboration, and few books supplemented their dense anatomy text with pictures. It it actually remains astounding that whilst the visual record of the parables was displayed for the illiterate masses on the walls and ceilings of every church, that few had actually considered the possibility of pictorially conveying the known canon of anatomical knowledge to those who were far more educated. Of the earliest imagery, the crude types of illustrations seen in anatomy and surgery books seem today almost comical in their appearance. Their purpose was really not so much to teach the intricate details of anatomy, but rather to stand alone as emblematic reminders of the powerful impact of peering into the interior of human body. Pictures were not teaching aids as such, but rather templates or propaganda concerning themselves with the sublime recapitulation of Aristotelian and Galenic dogma. In the simpler sense, however, the most primitive anatomical images were not for personal interpretation, nor were they there to encourage those anatomists who were already actively engaged in dissection of the corpse to embark on discoveries likely to sit in discord with the conventional Galenic thought. For this purpose, the text, rather than any pictured pictures, seemed far more persuasive. 
in their isolation, there was little knowledge or synergy with a much more advanced Arabic school. That connection would not come until the books ransacked from the great library of Cordoba by Christian armies in the 13th century, or that had come from as far afield as northern Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, and even India, had found their way to Italy after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. But even in the Arab world, there was no illustrative tradition, either in religious texts or in books, about medicine. It was only when Padua's professor of anatomy, Andreas Vesalius, uh, started performing the dissections himself, rather than simply lecturing about anatomy from the textbooks, that he noted so many differences between what he had read in Galen and what he could see through his own dissections. It was only then that he realised the power of switching the teaching of anatomy from the textual back to the visual. In the history of development of this art-anatomy interface, each image has an underlying narrative and is subject to an underpinning philosophical approach to the portrayal, balancing the complexity of what a picture intends to reveal with its artistic licence. The earliest imagery of the interior of the body in some cases shied away from the depiction of women altogether, but in other woodcuts was almost voyeuristically obsessed with an overrepresentation of the female genitalia. In the Middle Ages, when there was isolated performance of anatomical dissection, the Western canon of writers described the comparative anatomy of animals, assuming the interior of humans to show homology. The meagre repository of illustrations in these textbooks were not based upon personal observation, even when their authors had conducted their own independent dissections of corpses, but were rather there as guides to support the pre-established texts. In an age where there was no encouragement of empirical observation, discordant findings from personal dissections of the corpse were essentially ignored. When anatomy as a distinct discipline had not yet formally been established, or had separated from the crude mechanical art of surgery, there was a rather shadowy set of credentials amongst those carving up the dead, and any imagery was designed, if viewed by any member of the public, more to shock its, intend its unintended audience than to teach. But we perhaps cannot understand this early connection between anatomy and art, unless we come to understand the principles anatomy itself was trying to convey. Anatomy grew to become a discipline by amassing a repository of discrete knowledge facts in isolation. In some cases, even before, there was a nomenclature to describe the individual parts. And along this journey, anatomists suborned artists, some of them great, to convey its message. The subject anatomicum, if we can refer to the corpse as such, the cadaver, was the instrument of study for both scientist and artist and the public impression of the known anatomy in times when dissection would be restricted to one group drew from the other. For some anatomists, Bellico's argument over who had discovered what first would occupy much of their academic lives. Fearful that new discovery might eliminate their legacy, there are many examples of that. But as the visible domain of the gross macroscopic anatomy was conquered, they too, like the explorers, lost their sense of adventure. Now, how did anatomy link itself to illustration? And in so doing, what were its images 
trying to convey. I'm neither an historian nor an art historian, but I can only interpret how this might have come about by examining how dissection of the cadaver, anatomy's most powerful instrument, developed as a ritual. If we were to suddenly transplant a jobbing anatomist from his Renaissance dissecting hall into a modern anatomy school, since women were excluded in the main, his only point of common familiarity and reference would be the cadaver. I think I've mentioned this point before in the introduction. Everything else that we use today, the computerised graphics, video programmes, complex radiologic imagery, even the novel plastinated specimens that have been preserved almost indefinitely through a complex polymer impregnation technique, would all clearly be alien to him. From a distance, he'd recognise one of these plastinates, as they're called, but its synthetic touch would be wholly unfamiliar. Each, however, uh, as I've stated before, is merely a different means of showing him what he already knew. To some extent, it may be argued that each of these alternate technologies subverts the hard-won rite of passage by the student who learns about the structure of the human body through personal contact dissecting the corpse. This sort of knowledge is textural, assimilated like any other craft, and if doctors still learn by the bedside, then students do so by the slab. Illustration of the corporeal anatomy has, in this sense, taken on an even more important role in an era when there is less exposure to the long, tiring and demanding business of hands-on dissection. Traditional illustrations of anatomical dissections appear as snapshots in time, reflecting the current status of anatomical knowledge and the accepted style of artistic representation expected for that era. The average Renaissance dissections were limited by the corruption of the tissues examined so that uh, the period of usefulness was only a few days, the paintings and drawings then becoming the permanent record of such ephemeral events. More than this, however, the pictures were essentially philosophical enterprises which pitted the desire of the anatomist to communicate complexity, intricacy and accuracy with the needs of the artist for some kind of personal expression. But in conveying elements of the same piece of tissue or organ, in witnessing in effect the same thing, it is that stylistic panache that made each one of these images unique. If in the mind of Vesalius, dissection had always been about seeking the truth, then its illustrations would of necessity require an anatomical supremacy. Probably finding an artist with a prodigious talent who could stand the most repellent aspects of the dissecting room wasn't the hardest part. Securing a compliant painter with a subservient temperament who could take direction without argument would have proved much more difficult. <coughs> Such collaboration was, for example, beyond the irascible temper of Michelangelo, who declined to work with the anatomist Raoul de Colombo, 1515-1559, on his book The De Re Anatomica, and after much negotiation, the book was produced on Colombo's death without any illustrations, apart from a frontispiece, rather beautiful frontispiece, produced by Paolo Veronese. Leonardo da Vinci, too, worked closely in the dissecting room with a young Pavian professor of anatomy, <coughs> Marc Antonio della Torre, 1481-1511. But the two never produced a treatise on anatomy, despite both repeatedly making such a pledge. 
As it was, Delatorre succumbed as a young man to the plague, but for such an apparently intimate working relationship, in all of his notebooks, Leonardo only briefly mentions the professor just once, and even that's pretty vague. The notation was more one of pride by Leonardo, that he felt that he'd essentially conquered the subject of anatomy by 1510. He writes about it adjacent to a detailed drawing of a lower leg on the recto page of sheet 19016 in the Royal Windsor Collection. He writes that he believed that he was coming by either spring or winter of 1510 to a finish of his anatomy studies. The Italian is Equesta Vernata del 1510, Credo spedire tutta all'notomia, all of it being finished by 1510. Vasari has suggested that Delatore supplied Leonardo with about 20 corpses to dissect, and it may be that the anatomist was a far more enthusiastic partner in any collaboration than the secretive old master. The rise of some of the outstanding uh, <coughs> technical artists of anatomy who were able to find their genre to some extent parallels the ascendancy of the anatomists themselves who are immersed in the detailed study of the human interior. But in answering what the image was trying to say, we're confronted with a question that can be asked of art in general. The Oxford art historian Martin Kemp asks, quote, how is a work of art embedded in history? Unquote. It's not just some semantic inquiry designed for art critics interested in the theory of aesthetics. At its core, it asks whether there are any ground rules which might link all pieces of art to one another, irrespective of when or where they were produced. Um, the definition of the most basic essential aesthetic element that unites any of the art forms and permits them to eclipse their era is akin to the search, perhaps, in physics for a unified field theory, a classical theory of everything that might unite the disparate mathematics of electromagnetism, gravity and the weak and strong forces between subatomic particles. This too is a similar thing. Um, the formulaic and stylistic body representations throughout history and the illustration of dissected anatomy should also be subject to the same definitions and translations that describe other forms of art. Some response to this question also governs the emotional reaction we might have to the purely aesthetic aspects that are particular to specialist anatomical art and that can afford it some universal attributes even when taken out of its historical context. The story of dissector and illustrator has been told only in patches. The haphazard nature of these early illustrations reflected a time before the ground rules for any curriculum of dissection had been formed. There was, after all, no established history of an art-anatomy partnership. It's doubtful if the anatomists would have been able to achieve such fame without the pamphlets of their companion travelling artists copying down everything they dissected and exposed. The approach of anatomist as chronicler with an illustrator standing at his shoulder had borrowed from tradition and might perhaps be considered no different to James Boswell following around Samuel Johnson and copying down everything that he said. Lorenzo the Magnificent, the Medici patron of Florentine art, 
in inviting Sandra Botticelli to conjure up the images for Dante's Divine Comedy, written over a hundred years before, realised even by proxy the emotive power of the image. This association, too, saw the anatomist physician Thomas Willis, 1621-1675, who'd first described the vortex of blood vessels at the base of the brain in 1665 that now attaches his name as the Circle of Willis, it saw him dragooning a reluctant Christopher Wren, 1632-1723, to stand alongside him and sketch as Willis hurriedly dissected corpses which had been sent from the gallows trees just outside Oxford. A young Wren, with little inkling yet of his monumental task designing some 50 churches across London in the wake of her 1666 Great Fire, finally agreed. But he found as much distaste in his task as the group of dons sitting in the Bodleian Library one floor below, who had vociferously complained to the Dean that their students were appalled at the intolerable stench Willis and his team were dredging upstairs. Some of the earliest examples of anatomical illustration of a five-figure series were called the Fünfbildserie, a collection of woodcuts found in Germany in the cloisters of Prüfening in 1154 and in Scheiren in 1250, and also in a 13th-century manuscript that is in the Basel University Library. These Primordial images all rather crudely show men and women frog-squatting, with, in some cases, the women almost giving birth to their innards, their hands often in some sort of mock benediction or prayer. Although this set, which separated the body into its system of bones, nerves, arteries, veins and muscles, initially appeared in Johannes de Ketham's Fasciculus Medicinae, which was first printed in Venice, in 1491 by the de Gregoris brothers, there is a disputed provenance of this, these archetypal drawings that places them as far back as Alexandrian times. This five-figure series was actually brought to prominence by Karl Sudoff, 1853-1938, a medical historian who discovered this set um, in a Codex Mononensis Germanicus, uh, in the Hof und Stadt Bibliothek in Munich. And the images appeared in a 1901 paper, Tradition und Naturbeobachtung, which was uh, a medical paper. Uh, although largely concerned with astronomy, there was a small medical and obstetric section with these pictures showing the position of various diseases and organs, the so-called situs viscerum. And the true source of that series of images is in dispute, with the suggestion by Sudoff that they might have had Persian, Tibetan, or even, as I've said, Alexandrian origin. De Ketham's book, however, was the first of its kind to combine illustrations of the body with an anatomical text, and for this the Gregori Print Brothers consulted a local doctor, Giorgio Ferrari dal Monferrato, about whom we know virtually nothing, in order to correct everything for accuracy. In the printing of the second edition by 1494, Giovanni and Giorgio di Gregori inserted large swathes of the older Anatomia written by uh, Mondino de Liuzzi in 1316, the Bolognese anatomist, and they accompanied his close Latin text with more explicit drawings of the organs of female anatomy. 
For the first time, the captions were pushed away from the spread pudenda, placing the Latin commentary around the image and even removing a small fetus in utero which had appeared in earlier editions so as not to distract the genital focus of the viewer. The significance of these early anatomical images is both symbolic and practical. The squatting frame with the legs wide apart identifies with the mythical earth mother, Baobo, who, according to legend, would make people laugh by exposing her pudenda. This type of anatomical picture can be traced back to ancient Mesopotamia, India, and even to Norman England. Nowadays, it's impossible to really tell its provenance since the imagery has become a broader, stereotypical trope of fertility more than of a generic anatomy. There were many purposes and uses of this picture, however, not so much to explain anatomy, but rather to act as a schematic reminder of womanhood and to use basic organ location in the geographic naming of diseases. Perhaps they were designed to take hold in the public imagination as a populist document and to function as a mnemonic reminder of the complexity of creation and of the hand of the creator. I've included some of these images on our um, Facebook um, attachment site, Anatopod. In a more practical sense, beyond their symbolism, they were all the Renaissance artists had to go on to decipher the internal structure of the human body. And it is known that Leonardo had a copy in his personal library of Mendinus's Anatomia and also of de Ketham's Fasciculus. It's not unexpected since these were the most popular dissection textbooks at the time. Using this primordial imagery as a template, Leonardo's sketch folia on human anatomy were, however, as transformative as, was, as what his predecessor, Giotto, had produced in architecture. After growing up with the rigidity of Byzantine art, for those seeing Giotto, for example, for the first time, the experience would have been very profound. Equally so with Leonardo. Viewing Leonardo's anatomical collection for the first time, Antonio de Biatis, who was the secretary of the visiting Cardinal Luigi of Aragon, wrote in his diary of his total astonishment of the pure skill of Leonardo's work. In amongst the great works with which Leonardo himself travelled and which he never let out of his sight, there were his private folia on science and engineering. And his attention to the section of the corpse evident in the Notomia drawings would, to Debiatus, have seemed a logical and necessary extension of Leonardo's philosophical approach towards the study of nature in general. But they would have been equally astonishing. Even if Leonardo's dissections were performed alone and in secret. That secret, of course, by the time of Debiatis, was clearly now out of the bag, and Debiatis, incredulous of the extent of the artist's dedication to the practice. Cardinal Luigi visited Leonardo at Amboise in 1517 with a travelling retinue of about 40 people, amongst whom was his secretary and chaplain Debiatis. And there they would have seen three of Leonardo's great works, which had rarely been seen up until then. The Mona Lisa, of course, his St. John the Baptist, the Virgin and Child with St. Anne. Debiatus wrote in his travel diary, the Itinerario, that, quote, this gentleman has written a great deal about anatomy, describing how Leonardo then boasted of having dissected some 30 corpses towards the end of his life. 
Some of the earlier anatomic imagery comes from the French surgeon Henri de Montville, 1260-1320, appearing in a work by him, the Chirurgia Magna, written in Montpellier, some time between 1306 and 1320, as an incomplete manuscript of anatomy and surgery. Because of the prevalence of death by poisoning, it had been tacked on to a larger compilation describing his compendium of antidotes, but it became a principal working text of anatomy and surgery throughout Europe for the next 200 years. In de Montville's manuscript, the crude exposition of a skeleton front to back or a male cadaver which has been uh, eviscerated clearly shows that there was a rudimentary knowledge of the body interior, but one which was devoid of any detail. The images that one sees, and I've posted these uh, uh, again on the site, look almost like a Spielberg alien. There's little to identify the dissection really as really human. And despite this, they provoked considerable shock throughout Europe when they were released, as there was no prior dissection tradition or culture. Regardless, they served de Montville's purpose in establishing his reputation as at least someone who was familiar with some of the inner workings of the body and who knew what he was talking about. There's no evidence that he ever dissected any human bodies, although he did provide didactic teaching to students by reading from the great masters of antiquity and by performing simple dissections on apes and pigs, as became the custom of anatomy teaching in medieval Europe. It's most likely that he was the first known academic to introduce visual representation into his teaching by illustrating anatomical points with large board drawings which he would carry around from lecture to lecture. There are miniatures of de Montville's images which have been discovered in libraries in Berlin, Erfurt and Paris, and a collection of them is held at the Royal College of Physicians in London. With the rise in the 14th century, the early anatomy schools in Bologna and Padua, the Latin text would remain. But as with Italian poetry and prose, under the watchful eyes of its greatest medieval writers, Dante, Petrarch and Boccaccio, the written word would give way to an Italian vernacular, and the appeal of the translated ancient texts became broadened. Dante, for example, 1265 to 1321, had shifted the reading of poetry in Italy from Latin, which was favoured among the upper classes, to a local, more broadly spoken Italian dialect, with his De Vulgari Eloquentia on the eloquence in the vernacular, which was written somewhere between 1302 and 1305. It was originally intended as four volumes, but he abandoned the project in the middle of the second book. Francesco Petrarca, for example, or Petrarch, 1304-1374, as one of the period's most influential poets, wrote his Secretum, a dialogue with St Augustine, in local Italian, between 1347 and 1353. And in 1353, the same year, Giovanni Boccaccio, 1313-1375, had produced the Decameron, also in Italian, which described the tales of seven young women, caught outside Florence, trying to escape the Black Death. If, however, there is to be an archetypal anatomy book of the medieval period, we've briefly mentioned before, it is Mundinus's Anatomia Corporis Humani. Mundinus, who worked in Bologna as a practising physician anatomist, was amongst the first to revive anatomy in its formal teaching after the Galenic period. Um, 
by reintroducing public dissection of the cadaver along with a methodical schedule of its conduct. Although his book was produced without illustrations in 1316, it was republished in Pavia in 1478 and then again in Venice in 1493, as I've said before, as part of the Fascicula de Medicina of de Ketham, with a few images, including one of Mundinus himself, seated in the lecturer's chair and reading from a lectern while his students below dissect a corpse. Uh, there are a number of other plates just merely showing students writing and listening. The iconic image branded Mundinus's technique as to how anatomy should be taught uh, then became the standard, and in it the professor is seated at the top reading from one of the established textbooks with a dissector below, usually a trained surgeon, whose task it was to actually cut up the corpse. And then there was an ostensor, who might have been the equivalent today of a mortuary attendant, whose job it would be to stand at the bottom, pointing to parts of the body on display, described by the professor, and coordinating the spoken with the written word. Mendinus's method of anatomy teaching was followed for the next 200 years, and had been designed and then subsequently modified so as to act as a distinct affirmation of the known textbook of Galen. The technique, if we are calling it that, itself was only challenged when Andreas Vesalius left the lectern as professor and in dissecting the cadaver himself became professor, dissector and ostensor all rolled into one. It was only afterwards when he was able to see how much dissection of the corpse was at variance with Galen's teaching that he started letting his students hands-on dissect for themselves. And that personal dissection where students individually or in small groups dissect the body of a corpse from top to bottom has been practised in anatomy classes ever since. After the French Revolution, there was wide availability of bodies for dissection and given the limitations on access imposed by royal decree in England, many British students went to France for hands-on cadaveric dissection experience in what became known as the Parisian method. Prior to Vesalius, there would be a loose fusion of woodcut and engraving imagery with dissections of the body amongst anatomists whose names reflected their birthplace and their local fame, and who were responsible for the spread of the methodology of corporeal dissection and its earliest illustration in Europe. The process had been kick-started by an exponential rise in printed books since the invention by Gutenberg of movable type, after which the number of texts in Europe increased from about 30,000 in all in 1440, about the time of his invention of the Western printing, to 8 million by 1500. So in that 50-year period, an absolute explosion of books. The new anatomists who were working with their names usually recording their towns of origin included people such as Guido de Vigano, 1280-1349, who brought Mendinus' text to France even before dissections were permitted there. Among them, too, was Peter d'Abanno, 1250-1315, uh, who produced the first images of the uh, abdominal and body wall musculature and who most likely performed the first recorded autopsy in Padua, and who was simultaneously Padua's Professor of Medicine and Paris as Professor of Philosophy at a time when such dual appointments were possible. Devana was later 
um, charged with heresy and uh, uh, died in prison. By 1493, the German Richard Hélène had printed the first known images of the skeleton, the basic sheet of which has been reprinted in Strasbourg in his Chirurgia und Anatomia by the army surgeon Hieronymus Brunswick, 1450-1512. The German anatomist Johannes Palik, 1474-1522, around about 1522, then published the first anatomic encyclopedia with images of the entire body in his widely disseminated Compendiosa Capitis Physici Declaratio. As an anatomist artist, Palik was the exemplar, pushing his scientific work at the University of Leipzig, where he was also the rector of the Faculty of Arts. So there was this great collaboration between faculties of arts and sciences. Now, this directory was produced as a purely anatomical piece, the Anatomia Totius Corporis Humani Surumque Partium Principalium, a, a total anatomical body of knowledge fusing the teachings of Aristotle and the Arabist anatomists. And this was a medieval tradition and an early Renaissance tradition to combine the known volume of work of science and, to some extent, art, even before science had fully developed. These books were like the monastic incunabula, produced with pictures made from single-page woodcuts or occasionally from copper engravings, etchings and lithographs. And they were then laboriously attached around or within the movable type texts. In the critical response to these earliest works, the reviews, however, were pretty mixed. One prominent Austrian anatomist, Joseph Hertel, 1810-1894, labelling them as all grotesque, still conceded that the successful depiction of anything, even when grotesque, demanded no little artistic skill. In contrast, the Strasbourg pathologist Friedrich Wieger, 1821-1885, wrote that, quote, small boys with charcoal could do better on walls, unquote. It must be conceded, however, that nearly anything by comparison with these basic line images was a substantial improvement and likely to be informative. The publication of the dispositions of the organs by the Strasbourg physician Gregor Reich 1467 to 1525, in his 1503 Margarita Philosophica, the Philosophic Pearl, still represented some kind of advance. And in 1518, with Laurentius Friesen's edition of the Spiegel der Arzni, the viscera are drawn with far more complexity, prominent lines marking the open body cavities from whence they came. It clearly shows that the Dutchman Friesen at least understood the anatomic relations of organs and that he personally, physically removed them from their attachments. But comparisons of these rather unsophisticated images with Leonardo da Vinci's spectacular but private anatomy pictures coming as both sets did at the close of the 15th century shows just how far Leonardo was above anyone else as an illustrator of natural realism. It's a topic I take up in a later podcast in this series. Leonardo's particular approach to anatomy and the evolution of his anatomical illustration is something that we'll talk about in a lot more detail in another podcast. 
One reason, however, for this difference that lies outside the particular genius of Leonardo was the fact that the anatomists and the artists were working in isolation. The idea that such an enterprise could be wholly collaborative only actually occurred to Vesalius in the mid-1540s, and it wasn't something articulated as an objective of scientific effort, really, until Francis Bacon suggested it as a kind of utopian ideal in his 1594 book, Gesta Graeorum, The Deeds of Grey. Bacon's revolutionary idea to collaborate within the sciences was an overarching admixture of the metaphysicians and the natural philosophies. He saw them all working together and was the first blueprint one can think of it as a museum. It provided an opportunity for the common man to see the world's art and the panoply of nature under the one roof. This was at least an aspirational goal. Illustrating anatomy was an activity, though, whose time had come. And this was a Renaissance ideal. No matter how much some anatomists might have preferred their isolation, many cities enacted a means for professional intercourse that served as an antidote to that intellectual distancing, if we can put it that way. The prospects for interaction between artist and anatomist varied, however, from region to region. The structural alliance within the Guild of Florence, for example, afforded artisans in town an opportunity to brush shoulders with the physicians and surgeons. The trade guild, which registered all of the apothecaries and doctors, also enrolling and accrediting artist members as early as 1297. That's an extraordinary thing. The guild itself was controlled by four annually elected consuls, who also oversaw the business and membership of the city apothecaries, midwives, herbalists, distillers, undertakers, booksellers and silk merchants. Bologna also had an established tradition of public dissections controlled by the Air University, to which many artists were commonly invited. Florence, by comparison, was more of a developing centre of art, and like uh, many of the smaller regional towns, it didn't have a university at all. Many attempts had been made... Uh, to establish a studium generale there, starting as early as 1320, when Guglielmo de Varignana, who had performed the first autopsy in Bologna for a case of suspected poisoning, was employed by the Florentine Signoria to teach a combination of art and medicine. Florence was held back too by an outbreak of plague in 1348, forcing the Holy Roman Emperor to restrict university appointments altogether. Actually, at that time, Dante and Boccaccio were both appointed by the University of Florence uh, around the same time as lecturers in literature. The rules for the dissection of bodies were also particularly specific and regional. The administrative podesta of Pisa University, for example, permitted two annual dissections and then only upon those who had been hanged but not beheaded. In part because of these restrictions, Florentine artists came to realise the value of performing personal dissections on cadavers themselves, and they were given rights as quote-unquote responsible persons to apply directly to the local hospitals for dissecting privileges. In his book on anatomy and surgery, the De Abditis Nonodus et Mirandus Morborum et Sanitationum Causus, The Secrets of Some Remarkable Diseases and Their Healing, 
the anatomist surgeon Antonio Benevieni, 1443-1502, who was one of Leonardo's contemporaries and who had performed 20 autopsies, wrote about how easy it was in Florence to get hold of bodies to dissect. Actually, Benevieni's original Latin manuscript is lost, and it's only known through a posthumous edition edited by his brother Girolamo and a friend Giovanni Rosati. But there are a number of other edits of parts of what are thought the original by Cesare Guasti, Francesco Pucciotti, as well as an English translation which was produced by Charles Singer. Pucciotti discovered Benevieni's Abditis in 1855, noting that Benevieni had clearly described gallstones, uh, cancer of the stomach, kidney stones, peritonitis from bowel perforation, and the mechanism of transmission of congenital syphilis. That's perhaps a book in itself. If we're able to jump rapidly ahead, then over time the illustration of cadaveric dissections became more and more realistic. And by 1858, images had metamorphosed into a formulaic sweep of precision in Gray's Anatomy, a book which we've already briefly met. Its images executed by the hand of its illustrator, Henry Van Dyke Carter, under the dissecting instruction of Gray, were so distinct that they've become instantly recognisable, even though Gray struggled throughout his short but productive life with how much credit he would ever attribute to Carter. It's arguably at this point with Carter's drawings that the imaging of cadaveric dissection created the blueprint global benchmark for most textbooks of anatomy that we can see today, with an almost photographic realism that was so precise that it nearly suborned the physical experience of dissecting the body for oneself. Now, of course, only just mention the bookends of anatomical illustration where everything in between was an evolution in artistic representation that was nearly as convulsive as the history of dissection and discovery itself. Over time, style became less individual and transformed into a uniformity in the presentation whose task was nothing more than the demonstration of the objective information gained by the dissection process. The legacy of Carter's style was that of a no-frills approach which discarded the Baroque backgrounds that in other genres forced a complex and often distracting stage of bedfellows onto the images of internal anatomy. These images were frequently used for other purposes, exploiting anatomical features which might parody the corpse or the skeleton into contorted poses in what is called a danse macabre, or also called a totentance. And this delicate positioning of a dancing skeleton amongst the living can be found in the folklore from Spain through to Romania, the German pictures often including the moralistic aid memoir Ob Arm Ob Reich im Tödegleich, whether rich or poor, all are equal in death. Indeed, even the dancing skeletons were used as a motif for Walt Disney's 1929 Silly Symphonies, which you can see on YouTube. In the earlier anatomy books, the dancing skeleton serves no anatomical purpose, but it's rather there as a memento mori, and an intonation that mortem omnibus nobus venit, death comes to all. It's a moralistic leveller, 
the imagery part of the vanitous theme of allegorical paintings where subtle symbols are used to remind the spectator of the ephemeral nature of existence, the irrelevance of worldly possessions, and I think how to conduct oneself after a life filled with sin when preparing to meet one's maker. In reading anatomy drawings, just as in reading other images, even the illiterate would have been well-versed in the symbolism of death and atonement. The idea that any treatise on anatomy should be accompanied by descriptive illustrations at all, although it had its most serious start in the Renaissance, only really came to prominence from the 18th century onwards. Prior to this time, most anatomy books, with notable exceptions, were printed in close Latin text, and the majority were devoid of any pictures. Out of deference to Vesalius, and finding out in 1541 about the superiority of his rival's images, Ferrara's professor of anatomy, Gian Battista Carano, 1515-1579, actually shelved his idea of embellishing his own work, the Musculorum Humani Corporis Picturata Dissectio, on all of the muscles, with pictures drawn by his friend, the artist Girolamo de Carpi. Canano obligingly held off on production until after the Fabrica had been published. He was actually visited by Vesalius, who showed him some woodcuts, and he realised that his own imagery was far inferior. It was still a remarkably magnanimous gesture that changed both the course of Canano's life, who, writing without regret of his decision, published only the first part of his illustrated work dealing with the anatomy of the muscles of the arm in 1545, about two years after um, uh, Vesalius. For Vesalius, the popularity of the Fabrica acted, however, as a two-edged sword. Widespread acceptance and use permitted him to travel and to demonstrate his radical dissecting techniques uh, throughout Italy and Spain. Before his second edition came out in 1555, all of his anatomy images had already been pirated, printed and widely circulated. There were even some anatomists like Spain's Juan Valverde de Amusco, born around 1525 and died around 1587, who in the absence of any plagiarism laws, performed his own cut and paste, if you will, of Vesalius, transporting large parts of his text verbatim into his own, that is, Dea Musco's anatomy book, the 1556 Historia della Composizione del Cuerpo Humano. Dea Musco's Historia was produced with only four of its 42 copper plates as original drawings, the rest stolen from Vesalius and reprinted without acknowledgement. News of the Astoria had apparently sent Vesalius into an incandescent rage, but the complaining letters that he sent to his brother about the matter were most angry about the fact that Dea Musco had dared translate his work into Spanish, not really that the images were stolen. To be fair, Dea Musco did provide some commentary that was new on the muscles of the eyes and the nose and the larynx, with some of the imagery signed as MB, which was thought unattributed to be the work of a local artist, Nicolas Beatrice, along with some images possibly drawn by the young master, Rosso Fiorentino. The muscle men, as they appeared, of Vesalius are instantly recognisable. These images show them posing with a strident arrogance, 
and provide an informing compliance against a backdrop of the Ujjain hills around Padua. As each layer of flesh is peeled away down to the bone, they turn their contemplative heads to the side and cooperate without emotion. I've put some on our uh, attached uh, um, Facebook page. One can readily imagine the book open at the edge of some Renaissance dissector's table, the anatomist's knife in hand, following the instructions of the text like some macabre cookbook and checking successive pictures which what, with what they found on the slab. The Fabrica of Vesalius was meant to be a practical book and it remained popular in anatomic discourse for the next 250 years. The young Dutch portraitist Jan Stefan van Kalker had been brave enough to follow Vesalius into the dissecting room. There is, however, debate about whether he was the artist of the Fabrica, some even suggesting that Titian himself was responsible. Although Vasari clearly records van Kalker as the artist, the young man had only worked with Vesalius once before on the Tabulae Anatomicae Sex, which was a collection of six anatomy charts published in Venice in 1538 that had been marvellously successful and which had also rapidly disseminated throughout Europe. The quality of these drawings, outlining the arterial and venous trees, the muscles, nerves and bones of the body, seem a world away from the sophisticated imagery, however, of the Fabrica, and it does lend some weight to the argument of sceptics who suggested that it would have been impossible for Van Kalker, who was in his 40s at the time of the Fabrica, to have so sort of rapidly matured in both style and skill in such a short period. So it does raise the possibility that the artist may not have been Van Kalker. Although some of these images appear particularly staged today and even melodramatic, it was said at the time that there were students who, on viewing Vesalius's Fabrica, were so disturbed by what they saw that they gave up their medical studies altogether. It seems astonishing. These things were not for the faint-hearted, and much of this fear, for example, is in the grappling hooks that were used for transporting the corpses, which Vesalius describes in minute detail and with an image by Van Kalker. In one of Van Kalker's plates, the corpse dangles precisely as Vesalius outlined, the imagery showing the pulley systems and rope restraints that lifted bodies into position, their chest and abdominal cavities emptied of content the manner in which the jaw and the zygomatic arches of the cheek are strung up by rope shows the precise places that they're cut today whenever we wish to explore the depth of the face in what's called a temporal or infratemporal dissection and to visualise the neural structures as they leave through the base of the skull. This dissection schedule exactly follows the rigorous protocol of any Renaissance anatomization a protocol that Vesalius himself established for dissection of the cadaver and that was entirely practical in following the order of putrefaction of the body systems before anything could be preserved. In another extraordinary image which I put on the Facebook page, Vesalius even had one of his skeletons intently examining the skull of another skeleton, leaving the contemplative words for his audience, vivitur ingenio, Caetera mortis erunt, genius lives on, all the rest will perish. It was perhaps the most thinly veiled self-reference by a man who at the time, with some justification, regarded himself 
as simply the greatest anatomist on earth. Actually, man lives through his genius, all the rest is mortal, was borrowed from Virgil's Elegiae, um, and the phrase also featured in a 1524 portrait by Dürer of his best friend, the German lawyer Willibald Pirkeimer. So there are always earlier origins to some of these terms. But it is part of the arrogance of Vesalius to have one skeleton examining another and to speak of the genius of the person who invented the idea, even if he didn't invent it. For an anatomist to direct the artist was not without precedent, but the reverse was rare. The master Michelangelo Buonarroti had already been an unofficial advisor to De Musco, who himself had trained in Rome under Vesalius's successor, Raul de Colombo, whom we've briefly met. We've seen how Colombo tried without success to convince Buonarroti to assist him as the collaborating artist for his data anatomica, the purpose of which was actually to eclipse his old teacher, Vesalius, by outlining all of the Vesalian mistakes in the fabrica, just as Vesalius had done to outline all of the mistakes Galen had made. There's been much speculation as to why Michelangelo might have refused to assist Colombo, prematurely bragging, in fact, Colombo in letters to his friend about a collaboration with Michelangelo that never eventuated. The argument that he was simply too old, that is, Michelangelo, seems spurious, since at the time Michelangelo had just taken on the construction of the Porta Pia and the Santa Maria della Angeli uh, chapel. Perhaps he had no desire to be a subordinate in any project, no matter how interesting. As it was, the Dere Anatomica was published in 1559 without any illustrations except for a magnificent frontispiece which looked like that of the Fabrica, in this case drawn by Paolo Veronese and showing the anatomist performing a public autopsy. Today, Colombo is a forgotten man, as is Dea Musco, who, not content with stealing from Vesalius, also borrowed his imagery directly from Michelangelo. At the start of his Historia del Cuerpo Humano de Musco's artist Gaspar Beccara proudly displays the motif of a corpse carrying its own skin in penitence. Beccara had borrowed from the portrayal of St Bartholomew at the centre of the Last Judgment, painted 15 years before by Michelangelo on the great altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. In one of the world's most recognisable paintings, denoting the sinister side, the left-hand side. St Bartholomew grasps in his left hand the shriveled skin of a man believed to be Michelangelo himself. One can see that on the altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. And in his right hand, the saint carries a paring knife which is triumphantly raised towards the body of Christ. A similar image, actually, the flayed St Bartholomew appeared well before, as these things do, in de Montville's 14th century Chirurgia Magna. In the post-Vesalian world, the synergy between artist and anatomist, which was reliant on a shared consensus of how anatomy should be drawn, sharply shifted focus. The sight of resident anatomists uh, or resident artists, pardon me, attending the anatomy faculty of a fledgling university soon became more common. The renowned Paduan anatomist Hieronymus Fabricius ab Aquapendente 
1537 to 1619, who preferred to be called Fabricius, a teacher of Harvey, took it upon himself to commission groups of artists and actually bring them in to his dissecting room to record his dissections. It was a bit like inviting in a camera crew into the operating room these days in order to promote some new technique. The approach was revolutionary, although it backfired a little bit, causing great consternation amongst his colleagues who were particularly secretive about their work. Fabricius, along with a studio of artists, prepared his atlas of human and animal anatomy, the tabulae pictae, with more than 300 illustrations, and all of the artists for this work are unknown. Actually, in error, that particular work was published without any captions or labels, which is why there's some doubt about it, and it was lost until a researcher, Giuseppe Sterzi, at the State Library in Venice, found some of its loose folia in 1909. The war of demonstration between illustrator and dissector will always ask the same questions. These are points of philosophical difference which in essence battle over the same thing. Should there be total realism? Can artistic licence in accuracy be taken and accepted? Is it the intention of the artwork to define some minor and specific anatomical point or anatomical variation. One who understood the importance of these seminal questions and who took to heart the need for an alignment of dissection with great representative art was Bernard Siegfried Albinus, 1697-1770, the charismatic professor of anatomy at Leiden. His 1747 magnum opus, A Giant Book, The Tabuli Skeleti et Musculorum Corporis Humani, signalled his obsessive ambition to portray the anatomical features of a perfect man, a homo perfectus. And for the purpose, he mixed the composite elements he had obtained from his many dissections of corpses so as to create the impression of idealised limbs and torsos. On one side of his book was the most perfected image of the dissected form drawn by a professional artist and showing the precise origins and relations of every muscle and ligament and of their exact insertions into their respective joints and bones. And on the other side was a geographic contour map, with the exit and entry points of every part of the muscles annotated and traceable with a personalised notation system. Albinus's schema permitted the faultless transfer of any human image to any other surface in what he had thought was the ultimate word on the normal human anatomy. The artist Albinus chose for the task was the Netherlands' premier engraver, Jan van der Laar, 1690-1759. Together, under Albinus's constant direction, they developed a foolproof method for the transfer of his drawings from canvas or paper using a grid system of correlating points where any image could be rendered with complete accuracy either as an enlargement or as a miniature. Albinus was in this endeavour so demanding that he admits in his diary to terrorising Vandalar, and Vandalar, despite the abuse, became so attached to Albinus that when Vandalar's son unexpectedly died, he moved into Albinus's home, where he stayed for nearly 20 years. Actually, Vandalar's shopkeeper parents were profoundly disappointed when, as a child, he had expressed a desire to take drawing lessons and they reluctantly let him study with the engraver Jakob Folkema, and then with Gerard de Lares, who was a pupil of Rembrandt, 
until Delores went blind from very advanced congenital syphilis. With a combination of insight and hubris, Albinus wrote in the tabuli skeleti of how he actually tormented his artist Fandelar. Quote, he was instructed, directed, and as entirely ruled by me as if he was a tool in my hands and I made the figures myself, unquote. Fandelar was actually reputed to be so skilled that he was able to incise directly with his cutting burin onto copper plates, creating the requisite intaglio for printing without the need for any preliminary uh, drawings. Uh, extraordinary uh, sort of story. The technique they actually developed together, and which is still used in art studios today, was certainly as important as the camera obscura, where through a pinhole an image could be enlarged, albeit inverted, by changing its distance from an intervening screen. Albinus and Vandelaar had set up two separate frames of different sizes, with a net grid in each, through which Vandelaar would look, drawing the image of an idealised skeleton point by point onto paper. And the effect was to realistically reduce the impression of foreshortening of the articulated skeleton, which was fixed in such a position, so that all the parts were visible at right angles to one another, so there was a front-on view, an anterior view, a lateral or side view, a posterior or a back view. And to then produce equivalent images, one frame was then placed 40 Rhenish, which is about 12.5 metres away, with a normal grid, and another 4 Rhenish away with a one-tenth size grid. Albinus's atlas was wildly popular throughout Europe, prompting his student and his university successor, Hida Justus Halbertsma, 1820-1865, to declare in an 1848 lecture that, quote, after Albinus, in anatomy, it was now impossible to discover anything new. It's rather sort of sycophantic thing to say, but anyway. In the illustration of a perfected man, the relationship between Albinus and Vandelaar was considered paramount. The two men, having already worked together on Albinus's anatomy projects, the Musculorum Ominus in 1734 and the Iconus Osseum Fetus Humani in 1737. Both had a particularly high professional mutual regard, and Vandelaar would never produce an image without Albinus's express approval. When illustrators were often left behind and even unmentioned in the great textbooks of anatomy, as had happened with Vesalius and Van Kalkar, and would happen with William Hunter and Van Rimstick, which I'll explain in a later podcast, Albinus, in gratitude and affection towards Vandelaar, and with the dedication one normally would pay to an equal, wrote in his Historia Musculorum, and to you, Jan Vandelaar, an artist who has no equal in this genre in any age, the thanks you deserve. He wrote it in Latin, so hopefully Vandelaar read it. This mutual admiration society, however, was not universally shared, and Albinus suffered the opprobrium of arguably the finest anatomist of the age, Franeken and Groningen's anatomy professor Petrus Camper, 1722 to 1789. We'll hear a little more about him in another podcast. Camper gnashed at Albinus for producing bodies too close to perfection and for confusing that which was natural with an ethereal ideal. If the body was for Camper to be appreciated at all, it should be depicted, quote, architectorum more in the architectural style. And he was sure that Albinus had been seduced by the artists to create the images of figurines and not of men. 
the English anatomist, uh, artist John Bell, about whom we'll also hear in another podcast quite a bit, 1763 to 1820, in a coruscating rebuke of Albinus, agreed with Camper, writing that Albinus had, quote, anatomised a statue as never is to be seen in a dissection, unquote. To look at the images from a 1747 first edition of the Tabuli Skeleti, one is struck by the sheer size of the book, with the body drawn from every angle, firmly fixed in an attractive landscape that might have been inspired by any da Vinci backdrop, but that also reflects a distinctly grand and Hellenic tradition. The images by Bandalara are particularly idiosyncratic, and as measure for Albinus's love of the comparative anatomy between species, shows the drawing of an ideal skeletal man next to a rhinoceros. Now that curious juxtaposition has been extensively written about and likely reflects not only a sense of play between two friends, but also the local Dutch fascination with this particular animal. Neither Albinus nor Vandelaar ever explained quite what the rhinoceros was doing in the picture, but Vandelaar had drawn it ad vivum from life after he saw the famous travelling Asian rhino Clara in the Amsterdam Zoo. The rhinoceros was highly prized in the Netherlands because of its rarity and exotic characteristics, and prior to Vandelaar's image had only been drawn once before by Albrecht Dürer in 1515, a spectacular image of the first rhinoceros brought to Europe and presented to King Manuel of Portugal by King Muzaffar of Cambodia. Most likely, Vandelaar had cheekily convinced Albinus to put this image in the book partly because in Europe the rhinoceros was also considered a symbol of a universal force of nature, a vis vitalis. Vandelaar was just repeating his experience having already used an African rhino as the frontispiece for Peter Cobb's 1719 anatomy textbook, The Caput Bone Spehodiernum, On the Bones. Despite the initial popularity of Albinus's book, Camper and his followers unleashed a jealous fury at its success, and for once anatomists were criticising one another not so much over substance, but rather about style. The tabuli skeleti had taken Albinus 22 years from idea to print, and its condemnation had been so forceful that he never published again. It may seem odd that something so visual as the study of anatomy, a discipline that is inextricably linked to the process of spot recognition, could in most textbooks prior to that time have been so frequently presented without images. Even Edinburgh's leading anatomist and founder of her medical school, Alexander Monroe, 1697-1767, called Munro Primus, published his highly acclaimed The Anatomy of the Humane Bones in 1726 in that tradition, uninfluenced by either Vesalius or Albinus, and without a single picture. So too did the Swiss anatomist Albrecht von Haller, 1708-1777, publish an eight-volume anatomy series, The Partium Corporis Humani, as close and difficult text, free of any pictures. Soon enough, however, von Haller realised his error, and when he did finally produce a second definitive anatomical text, the Econum Anatomicarum, between 1745 and 1747, he structured it as a compendium of fascicles with extensive illustrations. Even though ultimately the task proved too ambitious and would defeat him, 
he could only choose to display the different parts of the body that he had separately dissected, and not the whole corpse, as was his original intention. In this enterprise, von Haller may have been one of the first to workshop his anatomy pieces into regional anatomical areas of interest, but he also quickly realised that if any of this was to become popular, factual text alone would not be sufficient. In a specialty such as anatomy, where there were incontrovertible facts to display, disseminate and absorb, anatomists lived beyond their discipline as inveterate slaves to popularity and fad, forever with an eye on the market. I've included a picture of that uh, skeleton rhinoceros on our Facebook page. With most of the great anatomists now driving their books through an association with even greater artists, a Versalian trend had been set. One of the most fractious of such liaisons occurred when the Dutch anatomist Gewert Bidlou, 1649-1713, invited the portraitist Gerard de Lares, who he'd met, to follow him into the dissecting room. Nowhere else would the gulf in the collaboration between painter and anatomist be so exemplified as in the anatomical imagery of Rembrandt's favourite pupil, de Lares. Bidlou's own magnum opus, his Anatomia Humani Corporis, which he had hoped would dominate the European anatomy market, sold poorly, perhaps more as a reflection of his irascible style than anything else, along with an obsessive tendency throughout its pages towards self-promotion. The fact that the book was replete with visual anatomical mistakes and a raft of artistic misrepresentations did, of course, not help matters. In publishing in haste, Bidlou had failed to edit the work sufficiently, with any influence by the book along with that of its author quickly fading. As Leiden University's rector, uh, Bidlou was renowned for his difficult management style, and despite the spectacular drawings by Delares, the book suffered because of the jealousies of some of the Guild of Surgeons directed towards Bidlou the man. But a lot of the antagonism had nothing to do with anatomy at all, in Amsterdam, the personal antipathy held towards Bidlou by Friedrich Reich, their longest-serving prelector, was almost palpable. There was also a profound hostility to Bidlou's devout Mennonite faith or to his declared political interests outside the Netherlands when he was appointed as the personal physician to William III of Orange, who was later crowned King of England. It's even likely that Bidlou suffered because of a negative reaction to the numerous satirical and political plays that he wrote, along with the range of libretti he composed for the Dutch National Opera Company. The hatred of this uh, Gewert Bidlou was so great that it probably impacted on the sale of the book, and in one altercation with Reich, whom Bidlou had accused of using profanities in his lectures to the midwives, Bidlou called Reich a subtile butcher and the most miserable of anatomists. Um, he'd ever met. Reich retorted of Bidlou that I should rather be called an inept dissectionist than a notorious whoremonger. This is the way they behave towards one another, and that he would rather be a subtile butcher than an infamous pimp. Uh, in fact, the Latin uh, for pimp and infamous is sort of similar. The comments are a kind of Latin play on words between Lano, a Janus, and Leno, a pimp. The book, however, would prove influential 
not by its words, but by Delaresse's artistic style. The images were highly innovative, for the first time directly demonstrating in an exquisite manner the three-dimensional anatomical relations of structures to one another, precisely in the way they would appear in a dissection, just as the anatomist peeled one layer of tissue off of the next. The individual artistic spirit of Delaresse, who was likened by many to the great French painter Nicolas Poussin, could not, it seems, be controlled by his patron Bidlou, and Delaresse impudently drew in one work a small but perceptible fly settling on the open abdomen of one of Bidlou's rotting dissection pieces. I've included that in the Facebook site. The English anatomist John Bell, on first seeing it in print, was left so confused that in exasperation he wrote that, quote, one had to be both anatomist and painter to guess what it meant, unquote. The attempts by Delores of satirical humour proved intolerable for Bidlou, and news of the altercation between anatomist and commissioned artist drew even further ire from Bell, who accused Delores of sketching with far too much hyperrealism and not enough anatomy. In it, quoted Bell, we have the objects before us, tables, knives, instruments, the completed preparations, even the fly buzzing towards the dissected corpse. Everything is shown together. In regard to anatomy, they are all in disorder and confusion. By this says Bidlou had had enough, and even though both men shared a mutual interest in the theatre, Bidlou and Delores never collaborated again. Still a young man, Delores was cruelly blinded by an advanced case of syphilis. Confined to his home, he was only able to teach art theory. Bell, too, despite his purest protestations as an anatomist, could not resist the temptation to assert his own artistic licence, and as an accomplished artist in his own right, he produced anatomical imagery that was as idiosyncratic as the man himself. After offending the lead physician in Edinburgh, Bell was effectively excommunicated, forcing him to leave London with his younger brother in tow, the talented artist and humanitarian Charles. Actually, <clears throat> Bell fell afoul of the physician establishment, most notably Edinburgh's professor of medicine, James Gregory, after publishing a pamphlet entitled Letters on Professional Character and Manners. That's already provocative which he had specifically addressed to Gregory. And after its publication and dissemination, <coughs> Bell never worked in the public hospitals again. And in 1790, Bell had rather arrogantly built his own anatomy school directly opposite the Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, and in defiance of the university's medical faculty, which was now run by Munro's son, Alexander Munro Secundus, Bell was regarded with disdain as serious competition. Bell's school, however, didn't last, and it was closed in 1799 as part of a general sanction which was imposed by Gregory. Ultimately, actually, uh, falling from his horse, Bell retired, moving to Italy for treatment. He's, he's buried in the um, Protestant cemetery, the Cimitero e Cattolico per gli Stranieri, for the strangers or foreigners, in Testaccio, Rome, on a grassy knoll just behind the tomb of the poet John Keats. When they did go down to London together, somewhat in shame, John Bell and his brother Charles, later Sir Charles, together took over the Great Windmill Street Private Anatomy School of the Hunter Brothers, 
John developing a following for his rather eccentric lecturing style and Charles' writing of the facial palsy (coughs) that bears his name. Charles worked tirelessly between 1801 to 1803, providing the images for John's sprawling four-volume atlas, The Anatomy of the Human Body. But his passion was in uniting the tenets of theology with those of anatomy. For this, as a testament to divine creation in 1813, Charles wrote, quote, the hand, its mechanism and vital endowments in evincing design. That was the name of the book. His earlier essays on the anatomy of expression in painting uh, were the inspiration for Darwin's 1872 publication, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. So all of these particular books had a great influential trend. John Bell was of the view that much of the imagery of dissection was wholly unrealistic and overtly sanitised. He wrote of, quote, the subjection of true anatomical drawing to the capricious interference of the artist, whose rule it has too often been to make all beautiful and smooth, leaving no harshness. And he condemned those artists for, quote, their vicious practice of drawing from imagination, unquote, kind of a sanitised dissection. John's imagery is more crudely executed than that of Charles, but both are instantly recognisable, and I've included some on the Facebook site. A bell cadaver was always engaged in its own dissection, even when the dissection action was far off in the distance. The expressions of the corpses are tormented and sorrowful, forcing us to bear witness to their surrender and sacrifice. John Bell's unique style echoed his certainty, just as Leonardo had of the beauty of all that was ugly and of the importance of giving the grotesque its own stage. For a short while, 50 years before Gray's Anatomy was published, Bell's four-volume work was amongst the most popular of English anatomy textbooks. Its popularity waned, however, into the middle of the 19th century as it became superseded, even if, like Bidlou's Anatomia, some had shunned it because of Bell's challenging personality. Tension between the pressure for anatomic realism and an inclination towards artistic insubordination would mark the relationship between two other dissecting brothers, William and John Hunter, and their favourite artist, Jan van der Rimschik. The older brother, William, became obsessed with a fanatical desire to capture in images the scientific essence of a growing pregnancy right up until the moment of birth and as it was, suddenly halted by the death of the mother. The first of the bodies which he received in 1750, he writes about as in such pristine condition that there was no putrefaction, the poor woman appearing in winter, an ideal time of the year for her dissection. Quite how such a recently dead and heavily pregnant woman came to William's Covent Garden suites for immediate dissection by his brother John is unclear but she would be joined over the next quarter of a century by 14 more women, each of whom mysteriously died in various stages of pregnancy and who ended up on the hunter's dissecting table. How fortuitous for an established artist to have been on hand each time, ready and willing to sketch in an evocative red chalk the opened uterus of these hapless, nameless women. They were all the material of William's most planned and important book, the Anatomia Uterae Humani Gravidi, the anatomy of the human gravid uterus, exhibited in figures, as it's described in its title, 
the plates regarded by the obstetrician Sir James Simpson as the most exquisite ever seen. In his zeal, William had implored Van Rimsdick to portray exactly what he had witnessed, and like the plodding housefly that had wandered onto Bidloo's carcass, and from there onto the Delores canvas, Van Rimsdick had taken the liberty in one image of a foetus snug in an opened womb to show the ceiling windows in the dissecting room reflected in the fluid amniotic membrane covering the baby's head. I've included that in the Facebook site. For obstetricians wishing to make a name for themselves, Van Rimsdick was at least, for a short while, a known quantity. By request, he drew the pelvis of a 23-year-old dwarf, Martha Rhodes, who had undergone London's first reported caesarean section, performed by Mr Henry Thompson, and ably assisted by John Hunter. It can be found in a case of caesarean section by William Cooper, communicated by Dr Hunter in... Medical Observations, 1772. As it was, that was a tragic caesarean section. Um, The report appeared almost three years after the event, a tragic one in which the mother died five hours after surgery and the baby at two days of age. The post-mortem of the baby showed a moderate quantity of blood in Rhodes' abdomen, although seemingly insufficient to have caused her death, The baby had a skull and brain defect above the nose with an exposed membrane. So all around a tragic case. But yet again, uh, Van Rimsdick was on hand to do the necessary drawings. Although Van Rimsdick had drawn for other prominent obstetricians like William Smelly and Charles Nicholas Genty, after publication, Hunter ignored him, failing in the preface to his great book to even acknowledge him as the artist. Perhaps what might have been Van Rimsdick's finest hour actually haunted the artist, who retired soon afterwards, penniless and obscure. Whilst the Hunters and the Bells had opted for a raw anatomic realism, continental artists were still engrossed with the Rococo legacy left by Albinus. The Paduan anatomy professor Giulio Caseri, 1552-1616, used Eduardo Fialetti, 1573 to 1638, an artist who had been a pupil of both Titian and the elderly Tintoretto to produce exceedingly decorous images of the most helpful of cadavers. Here was the corpse gently lifting its own abdominal apron of fat or twisting nonchalantly and grasping its back muscles, pulling them across its waist like a sheaf of wheat. This sort of show-and-tell genre what uh, the medical historian Michael Sappel calls the show-off cadavers, was very uh, short-lived. Jacques-Fabien Gautier d'Agoti, in his domination of the surgeon Guichard-Joseph Duverny, inverted the artist's role with just as much force as Michelangelo had over Colombo or over Dea Musco. D'Agoti goaded Duverny towards a concentrated perineal dissection, from which he drew his inspiration to produce more and more risque, coloured, mezzotint erotica that became his soft tonal hallmark. In one of his works, Dagoti fetishises the open rawness of a woman just giving birth, forcing us to self-consciously stare at a consequence of nature rather than at any particular point of anatomy that he was trying to make. 
but to refocus our attention, he spares no time in anatomizing the stillborn child still connected by its umbilical cord to a mother whose outcome we do not know. And in another image, like the chilling dismantling of a matryoshka doll and leaving nothing to waste, a baby from a dissected womb is itself dissected. And I've included some of these uh, particular images uh, which can be seen on the site. In his research for a painting depicting Byron's 1816 poem Prisoner of Chillon, Ford Maddox Brown, 1821-1893, visited a London dissecting room for his inspiration, captivated by the otherness of death. He was able to find, quote, a cadaver that looked like a wooden simulation of the thing, announcing it to be, quote, a lovely and a splendid corpse, unquote. The darling of the surrealist movement, Max Ernst, 1891 to 1976, even used the body, his cadaver exquis, as the starting point for a mutual exploration of art and the inner human structure. Art in discovering anatomy had finally come full circle, only to once again find itself. Anatomists and illustrators have at times shared an impetuous and even fractious alliance. On occasion, anatomical art has been deliberately allegorical and even overtly religious, often tinged with a gallows humour or political overtones. It has frequently been more than the sum of its two parts. The constancy of death was not portrayed in a social vacuum, and it is no coincidence that its more figurative representations emerged just as opera, Shakespearean theatre and ballet were born. With its later incarnations cemented in the style of Gray and Carter, there was a distinct professionalism to the images of anatomy that supervened and then abandoned overt playfulness. Anatomy was bestowed now a scientific probity, its newfound austerity capably sterilising and disinfecting the foul stench of the dissecting room.